This episode of This Podcast is Making Me Thirsty is brought to you by the Institute for the Preservation of Motion Picture Costumes and Wardrobes, IPMPCW. Welcome to This Podcast is Making Me Thirsty, the number one destination for Seinfeld fans. This is episode 104. Today's guest is an attorney, an author, a sports writer, radio host, and television commentator. He created and owns the very popular pro football website, profootballtalk.com. His new book, Playmakers, How the NFL Really Works and Doesn't, is available today. And of course, he's a Seinfeld superfan, Mike Florio. Thank you for listening. If you dig it, please pass it on. Follow us on Twitter at this thirsty. Instagram at this thirsty, subscribe to the YouTube channel, rate and review on iTunes. Email so this podcast is making me thirsty at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. This podcast is making me thirsty. Episode 104. Mike Florio. Welcome to this podcast is making me thirsty. The number one destination for Seinfeld fans. This is episode 104. Today's guest is an attorney and author, a sports writer, radio host, and television commentator. He created and owns a very popular website, profootballtalk.com. You've seen him on NBC Sunday Night Football, Football Night in America, and NBC's coverage of Notre Dame games, as well as countless appearances on national radio and TV sports shows. His new book, Playmakers, How the NFL Really Works and Doesn't, is available now wherever you get your books. And, of course, he's a Seinfeld superfan. Please welcome Mike Florio. Mike, thanks for joining. Hey, great to be with you guys. And since it's episode 104, I have to ask for your 100th episode, did you do a clip show like Seinfeld <laughs> did? You know what? <laughs> Go ahead. No, no. We, well, we had on the man who wrote and produced the clip show, Peter Melman. So one of the... Yeah. Uh, one of the core writers of the show. Well, there you go. Close enough. Yeah, yeah exactly. You're not yeah. supposed to do any new work on a clip show. I thought you just threw the clips together. No, he had to work hard on that. spontaneously generated itself. <laughs> he told us he had to work hard on that. Larry David said, uh, you're going to put this together. And he sat there and like pieced the whole thing together. So it was interesting. All right. So, Mike, take us back. 1989. You're a young 24 year old. I'm guessing you're in uh, in law school. Seinfeld hits the airwaves. You a fan right away or did you get into the show a little bit later? You know, I remember generally liking Jerry Seinfeld as a stand up comedian. I'm not sure that I remember knowing that he was going to have a show. I remember it was called the Seinfeld Chronicles at first. And the first episode that I actually noticed was the deal with Elaine when they were sitting watching the Naked Channel and they hatched the idea that they would periodically get together. I had not seen it until then. And once I saw that, then I was hooked after that and actively paid attention to when it was going to be on. And back in those days, that's what you had to do. You either caught it while it was on, programmed your VCR if you had the technological capacity to do that accurately, and that was kind of hit or miss, or you had to wait for a rerun. 
that was it. I tell people that all the time. And, you know, as we get older and as the younger generations are so accustomed to being able to watch whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, this idea is foreign to them that if you weren't in front of your TV at the right moment, your opportunity was gone and you had no idea when that opportunity was going to come again. Yeah, exactly. And you felt left out with, with Seinfeld, especially if, if, if you missed the Seinfeld that, that, that Friday, especially for us, we were in, in middle school, high school at the time. Uh, you missed out on the conversation because you didn't get to see it when it came out. Um, you know, the deal is probably one of the greatest written episodes of all time. It's been talked about a lot. The dialogue there is incredible. That's season two. Um, I saw a tweet of yours. We went back a little bit to kind of find it because we know you like to tweet about Seinfeld. There was a tweet of yours about Elaine in the bus boy running around, you know, trying to get the guy in the plane in, 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 uh, into Seattle. Um, and you called it, you know, one of the most under, I think you said like underrated or, or best uh, scenes from, for my money. That is too. You talk about when you got into it with the deal, I got into it um, pretty much that same season too. And it's, it's the bus boys, Elaine's breakout episode. I think with the scene you're describing, I think Kramer's breakout is in the statue when he goes in and gets the statue from the guy to make love to the wall pervert and all that. That's also season two. And then George's breakout in season two is probably the phone message. Um, you know, tippy toe, lemon, lemon tree. Yeah, lemon yeah. Tree. yeah, yeah, exactly. So that, that whole like season two run, I mean, we're, we're partial to the later, later episode, the earlier episode, season two, season three, season four, season five. Um, but just touch on that. Like you watched a deal, it was probably unlike anything you had seen on TV at the time. And then as, as you kind of, like you said, got hooked on it for that second season, it was, it was groundbreaking uh, in, in a way. I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, as a 24 year old, you probably grew up watching the, a lot of those shows in the seventies that are kind of formulaic and the same thing always happens. Happy Three's days. Company. Every Tuesday yeah. night, eight o'clock ABC <laughs> world stopped spinning. So everybody could tune in and watch Richie Cunningham and Arthur Fonzarelli and Ralph Mouth and Potsy and the gang. So yeah, it was just different from anything I'd seen. It had a feel to it. It had a look to it that was just off enough, but in a pleasing way that just made it a show that, that invited you in and captivated you and made you wonder what these people were going to do next and what was going to happen next. And they were so brilliant at weaving different storylines together. And sometimes they would intersect and it, it really was genius. And one of the reasons I appreciate that scene from the Busboy episode with Elaine when I read the book Seinfeldia five, six years ago, whenever it came out, the fact that they had such little direction in the script, that it was just the words and it was up to them to figure out how they were going to go about doing it. The way that Elaine delivered that, the urgency, the, the running in place, just everything about the emotion that she brought to it made it real. That's the thing. You never watch that show and think anyone's acting. The only time you think anyone's acting is when Kramer badly acts like on Murphy Brown or <laughs> these pretzels are making me thirsty, whatever the case may be, he right. has that, that, that weird voice and he stammers. And, you know, when he's, when he's auditioning to be himself in, uh, in the, the pilot uh, not the pilot episode. Yeah. The pilot episode when they finally shoot the pilot, but that that's what makes it so impressive. All of the acting performances, because you know that they had to come with that on their own. And so much of it is just absolutely brilliant. And listen, the, uh, you know, we've talked to people who, help start the show and early on you know the thought was it's never going to make it it's too new york it's too jewish so and we're from new york so we i don't know maybe we just don't know any better but you're a west virginia guy i mean that just the show's funny right it just clicked with you you didn't feel like it was too new york when you were kind of starting to watch it 
No, and I always had a fascination with New York, so I thought it was kind of neat. It wasn't some house in the middle of America. It wasn't some some you know suburb of L.A. It was New York City, and it was life as a bunch of singles in New York City. And and it it never it never struck me as something that wasn't welcoming to the average TV viewer. It, it was good, and that's all that matters. As long as it's right. good, and as long as it's it's fun to watch the show and as long as the characters are likable in their own unlikable way, then you get invested in it. You want to see what, what they have in store for them next. Yeah. And you just mentioned something that, that also triggered something for me when you, you mentioned how they didn't have much direction and it was up to the, the actors to kind of put together their, their, their scenes with Elaine there. Um, speaking of Peter Melman, who we were just talking about when we were talking to him, he had mentioned that he had, he had a hard time writing for Kramer for a while until he figured out that Michael Richards would take whatever he wrote and make it what, what Michael Richards does because his acting was so good. So he would take what he had, what he thought was like a Jerry storyline, and he'd say, I'll just give it to Kramer, and he'll go off with it and, become, and just make it like he'll just do his thing. Michael Richards will do his thing. So you, you picked up on that, and that's exactly what they were doing. They just they figured out that they had four um, amazing uh, actors. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, spe- you know we, we kind of – you just touched on – you know, season two, um, I guess we'll just jump into it. What is, what did you, for us, probably three or five, we kind of go back and forth, but we think season five is our favorite, but we like to look at it in seasons rather than like your episodes. We, we might touch on that too as well, but I'm curious as a whole, what's your favorite season uh, of the show? Well, I always get the numbers messed up because okay, we can help you there. Probably was so short season four, the season with the arc of the yes. NBC show, because that had so many strange parallels years after the fact for me when NBC came sniffing around profootballtalk.com and when Rick Cordella, who's now the chief revenue officer of Peacock, approached me about having a partnership with NBC, I did the whole George thing from <laughs> the pitch meeting where I said, hey, look, you know, this is my thing and I'm going to do it my way and I don't want anyone telling me how to do it differently. And if that's the way it's going to be. We're wasting each other's time. This is the show. That's the show. That was basically the message. And my hope was that he would just leave me alone because I didn't want to do it. I was very comfortable with where my life was. I was practicing law. I was working on the website. We were making decent money on the website. We were in a nice sweet spot. And when I'm in a comfortable spot, the last thing I want to do is welcome change because then you potentially turn everything upside down. So I thought that that spiel would scare him away. And his answer after I finished my, George, this is the show, that's the show. I didn't storm out because we were talking on the phone. He said, I've got no problem with that. And so my reaction was, oh, shit, now i got to come up with another way to scare this guy away. I'm sorry, I don't know if your language is PG-13. You <laughs> can always fine. believe it if you need to. But, no, no. but that was my reaction. And so it took a few more months, and we had some technical issues that resulted in our servers imploding when we hit free agency in the draft in 2009, which caused me to realize it's probably time to get some help. But yeah, it was always kind of funny. My business partner and I laugh about it. At one point, I bought him the DVD set of season four just because of that weird parallel that these two slap asses were doing business with NBC and they had no business doing business with NBC, which just, you know, it, 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 I, that's why I love that, that season. And, and some of the best episodes, in my opinion, come out of that season as well. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, listen, can't argue contest for... That, yeah, Contest, The Virgin, The Opera, Chiever Letters, Bubble Boy. I mean, four is packed. The outing is Did you my admit? 
The, I think the, the outing, outing is, is my favorite. The, the moment, the moment when George, oh no, oh no, and gets up <laughs> off the couch and runs. Uh, I remember watching that with my wife, who was not my wife at the time. That's how long ago it's been. And she was laughing so hard when he does the, you know, do you don't have sex with me right now? Do you, let's go, baby. And, and <laughs> I remember how humored she was by that. And it's just one of those things that sticks with you 30 years later. So I always, whatever I'm doing, whatever that show, not, not that the, now it's on Netflix, so I just watch it whenever I want to. But it was on TBS where it would pop up. If that one was on, that was one of those where I'd stop whatever I was doing and watch the rest of that episode. Yeah, I mean, George is a special character. You mentioned it, like his business acumen, like whenever he's behind a desk, it's, it makes you laugh. And even even the opposite, right? Like people have, the Wall Street Journal, a lot of people have written about like using that mentality, even in business, like do the opposite. It's insane. But um, like George has such a, uh, he, he's probably our favorite. I think probably one of the greatest TV characters ever Ever, um, I'm curious. All of the and the, the four are great. I can't. They're hard to knock. But where do you kind of rank them, if you will, um, in your mind? The, the main four. Well, and again, here's what I'll say. I they change throughout the years, right? For me, Jerry's the, the steady one through nine, right? George and Elaine, in our opinion, dip off. But George is so powerful in those early years, I think he takes the cake. But I'm curious your thoughts on uh, on the big four. I think in the final two seasons, George, specifically Jason Alexander, overacts. I think there are times where it just feels like it's too much. Yeah, and uh, I, I just I think that Julia Louis-Dreyfus was never really appreciated to the extent she should have been for holding her own with three men. And the moments and the delivery, you know, the he took it out scene is one of my all time favorites when she blows on the glasses. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. I'd, I'd love to see how many takes it took them to get that just right, because it's just perfection. And she has to explain it 10 different ways to Jerry. And then all she has to do is say it once to Kramer. And he knows exactly what she's talking about. That That's one of the best scenes in TV history. Uh, so she I just think that she got so easily swallowed up by the personalities of the other three and the characters of the other three, that she was never really appreciated the way she should have been. Yeah, that's a good point. It's valid. Um, you know, it's uh, just to jump around a bit, it's, it, it's, um, we've had a few, um, you know, I, I'm a, I think, I feel like the sports world is, is, you know, the sports media world is, is a, in essence, almost a small group. Like a lot of you guys know each other. Probably you came up together, you work together, that sort of thing. Um, we've had a few, few people on from uh wfan you know we had steve summers on we had al dukes on uh, a couple of other people but i'm curious because i saw you on dan patrick not that long ago a few days ago and you slipped in a kibosh i didn't know if that was a seinfeld reference specifically or you just you just happened to say the word kibosh but i'm curious if you um you know how many people in your circle in that sports world maybe that we know or don't know that you you guys, you know, shooting around, having dinner on a Friday night at a steakhouse or something. How many of you were throwing around Seinfeld lines and who are some we might not know about that are that are kind of big time Seinfeld fans? Oh, Peter King, without question, is a huge Seinfeld fan. And we will send clips back and forth to each other or we will break into a dialogue back and forth from one of the episodes. He's very big on the Chinese restaurant episode and Cartwright and he'll just yell out. And we, we spent years working together <laughs> at NBC on Sundays and he would just yell out Cartwright. And uh, so <laughs> he's, 
he's he's a very very intense and knowledgeable Seinfeld fan so you know that's the thing it's like rooting for a sports team it's you know it, it gives you a common ground with someone if you find a Seinfeld fan you can immediately speak the language and you can find yeah and I think it's important in this crazy messed up society we're in where you know, people take things way too seriously and we all go to our separate tribes and we, we hate each other. That's a way to find people who are of a common mind to you and, and build bridges because you find a Seinfeld fan and you can start running lines back and forth and having a few laughs and reminiscing. And, and uh, you know, even now, after all these years, uh, it, it, it still has that effect on people. And I think that's valuable. Yeah, and it's you mentioned the lines. There's just something about lines. We actually about a year ago we ran a, a March Madness. We had a panel bracket um, of lines, right? A, a bracket of 64. And believe it or not, uh, Tony, which one won? It was "Shut Up, You Old Bag." The Rye. I was shocked. Yeah, somehow that won. I, uh, I think it was like an eight seed. I think it came out as like an eight seed and won the whole thing. Yeah, but I think that's that's the uniqueness of the show. But you NFL guys like Eisen and Rappaport, like always referencing Seinfeld, which. It's just, we love it. We absolutely love it. But yeah, sports plays a major role in the show. And maybe that's another reason why we kind of embrace it more than more than usual. But what I find interesting... He's watching the Mets game. He's trying to watch the Mets game. He's got it recorded. <laughs> oh, episode, oh, the Mets yeah. really blew uh, yeah. it tonight. Talking about yeah. what you were talking about before. No one realizes that. If anything happened in the Mets game, don't tell me I taped it. Like, no one gets that. That's and I always forget Kramer had a dog. Yeah, the dog right. runs in and jumps on George. Yeah, yeah. Counts for the whole thing. But uh, one of the sports they kind of neglect a little bit is football. And and I didn't it didn't bother me at the time. But years later, learning that Larry Dave was such a Jets fan, I was curious that he never kind of implanted that into the show, if you will. He, he took, the, took the high road, I guess, with the Yankees. They were more popular, you know, the mid-90s with the Jets. So, I don't know, Brownie Nagel, who are they going to bring on the show, right? But uh, I, I'm just curious, what, what are some of your favorite episodes of the sports episodes uh, of Seinfeld? I mean, they did have two memorable football episodes, the Joel Rifkin yeah. Giants yeah. game, where, where, where my, my on-air partner, Chris Sims, his dad, via NFL Films footage, makes a quick cameo. And Lawrence Taylor yeah, has that, see, yeah. looks up to the lights when he hears yeah. Joel Rifkin on the PA system. So that was pretty good. And then the Super Bowl episode when Tim Watley got the tickets and then Newman ended up sitting next to Jerry. And that was the whole menage a trois blows up in George's face. I mean, that, that was, that was a great episode too, but it was so rare that they delved into football. It made those so memorable to me because I'm a huge football fan. And anytime my favorite TV show would talk about football, I thought that was great. And, you know, there is a, there is an error in the Super Bowl episode, the label maker episode, because Jerry says when he's talking about what to do with the Super Bowl tickets, Kramer only likes Canadian football. But Kramer yeah. did go to the Giants game in the early. Right. So Good that's point. a flaw that still <laughs> this day. He also watches Canadian Parliament on C-SPAN. <laughs> yeah, the thing about Canada, Kramer, that's interesting. Well, they do. Unless, the- unless Kramer just wanted the free ticket, who knows? You know, yeah, maybe Kramer he does like to, likes an adventure. Um, but they did do the OJ thing, and it's funny. You, I, I really liked what you're coming from earlier about you know having to be there to watch it, and and uh, you know that whole kind of era and generation of, of TV, and and the show, as you mentioned earlier, the first episode is 
If you know what happened to Met Game, don't tell me I taped it. And the last episode is the cell phone walk and talk. So it pretty much it ends the entire era of that that time frame in our lives, technology wise, from a VCR to a cell phone, and then the show's off the air, right? So it kind of captures it all. Um, and it, it really, you know, takes all the main things from the '90s, the OJ stuff, the uh, the JFK movie with Keith Hernandez. Um, maybe you could speak to that just from. I mean, you're 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 a few years older than us, so you you know you're you have a, probably even a bit better perspective of it. But just like as you mentioned earlier, people just don't get what it was like to kind of um, not only as a as a fan watching the show, but what the show represents as far as the era goes, as far as like, you know, that nineties era of what, you know, what was going on in the, in, in pop culture, social, that sort of thing. you know, what, what those four people were doing in New York city kind of stuff. Um, And they're around your age too. So you probably really, uh, you know, related to them. It really does seem dated now because they didn't have cell phones because the internet was only mentioned, I think, in the one episode where George and Lord Braun were competing to sell computers out of Frank Costanza's garage. <laughs> they were talking about the internet and porn and stock quotes was the selling point when George was trying to get Jerry and Elaine to buy the computers. And then email was mentioned in that goofy Indian wedding in reverse episode, but you, mm. you didn't get much of what was coming. They were on the brink of the technological revolution, on the brink of the whole cell phone thing. And so many of the crazy scenarios wouldn't be relevant today because you could so easily contact someone. You don't have to worry about missing a phone call. You don't have to worry about going in and changing out the tape on someone's message machine and yell out tippy toe lemon tree when you know she walks out because she recognized Jerry from seeing him on TV. So yeah, it still would have been, look, it still would have been brilliant in any era, but it would have been so different today than it was in the 90s. And it's a, it's a great snapshot of that decade. It really is. And I never really think of it that way just because I still enjoy watching it. And right. I, don't, I don't think to myself, well, this is so dated. This is so ridiculous. I just accept the fact that it was made at a certain time and I just enjoy it for what it is. And it was limited by the technological realities of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I mean, I think it's more of... Um... You know, not that it's dated, but that it's uh, it's almost like an archival history. I mean, I watched Three is Company, and I, or or you know, I love Lucy. The same, you know, it's still a show. The show is the show. Funny's funny. Well, yeah, I mean, they you know they go to the video store. Well, when did the last video store close? Right, and one time uh, Elaine brings the copy of Havana that she had at her hotel, and he said something like, "I spent eighty dollars to watch Havana." You know, I mean that that that's so foreign to anyone nowadays that, you know, you have to go out somewhere, go to a store, rent a movie, remember to take it back, rewind it, or you get charged like George almost did when he rented Rochelle Rochelle and then kept it and lost it and had to pay for the whole thing. I mean, just the idea that 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 was even something that would pop up as a plot point. And now you talk to a kid about the concept of a blockbuster and they just, they look at you like you're talking about a covered wagon. Yeah, and the true irony is Seinfeld is now on Netflix, <laughs> you know, which destroyed Blockbuster. Um, so you mentioned some of your uh, uh, fellow cast members, Chris Sims, Peter King. Uh, you know, we've we've talked to over sixty guest stars, and for us, like that's that's what made the show. The big four were clearly tremendous, but the casting they did to bring in you name it, right, Bookman, 
or Babu or Banya. I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, it's it's really what made the show and like what makes it memorable. You mentioned Joel Rifkin, right? Who are some of your favorites of those uh, or favorite episodes with guest stars that you kind of remember or, or you well, talk let, about? Let, them? let me just share with you something that I generally do now. And Michael David Smith, who works with me at PFT, he's always the one I bother with these observations. If I'm watching any other show or movie from that era today or anywhere in between, and I see someone from Seinfeld, I yeah. figure out who it is, what episode yes. they were in, <laughs> and I'll, I'll text him. And, and it just happened recently because I was on with Mad Dog, Chris Russo, at the Super Bowl. And at the time, I was reading the Robin Williams biography, and he told me he was reading The Boys by Ron and Clint Howard. And I said, oh, yeah, Clint Howard. He was the guy that was in the back of the cruiser in Seinfeld and says, Ann yeah. Landers sucks. And Mad Dog just kind of looked at me like I was speaking a language from a different planet, which made it obvious to me he, he's not familiar with Seinfeld. But the epiphany I had, and it was so weird the way it happened. I'm reading the book about Ron and Clint Howard. Their dad, Rance Howard, was a, a guy who wanted to be an actor, and it never worked for him. So he poured his efforts into his kids, but he still did some stuff. And it turned out in one episode of Andy Griffith, there was a friend of Andy Griffith's that was going to be a guest star. And that guy had something happen on the set and he couldn't do it. So Rance Howard played the role. And it's like, well, I found it on YouTube. And I watched it. I said, man, that guy looks familiar. Man, that guy looks familiar. Well, he's been a guest star in Seinfeld twice. He was the blind guy whose yeah. glasses George tried to trade with. And he was the farmer whose daughter Newman tried to make time with. And that's Ron Howard's dad yeah. and Clint Howard's dad. And I never knew that. I just found that out in the last week or so. But I'm always on the lookout for little details like that. Yeah, watch watch some old uh, Matlock and Murder, yeah. She Wrote. Murder, She Wrote. I've been on a Murder, <laughs> She Wrote kick like you wouldn't believe. There's a Seinfeld character in every episode of Murder, She Wrote. Cheers. Last year at this time, yeah. guys, Cheers. I watched Cheers start to finish on Hulu. And it was like every episode, there was somebody from Seinfeld walking through the door of the Cheers bar. It was just amazing to me. Yeah, it's, incre it's incredible. That whole era, it's just like they just pop up. It's a fun – yeah, you're right. It's a fun game to like pick it out and then uh, – kind of find where, where they're at. Um, yeah, the secondary characters like Ohio too, You know what's sad about it? These people wanted to have acting careers and all they're remembered for, for all the effort that they put into it, are these little flashes. Like they got to their ceiling and yep. their ceiling was peripheral characters on a variety of shows and movies and that's it. That's all they ever did. But well, they, would, they wouldn't have kept doing it. We asked that question well, a lot. It, it depends who you talk to. Like we talked yeah. to Toby, if you remember the the the, the picky toe. Uh, oh, great, great, like that. She didn't have a good experience. It kind of pigeonholed her. But yeah. But others, it you know they love it. They they mentioned oh, so Seinfeld helped their career left and right. But yeah, it's it's. Uh, it could be a dog. I mean, we just I had Jackie Childs on. He 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 carried that character all the way through. Later, you know, he's still doing uh, Jackie. Ch you know, Phil Morris is still still did Jackie Childs. After the show is over, you know, there's people like the soup Nazi who just take it and go with it. And then that's their, that's their stick. 
which we're not the biggest fans of, but they, you know, they kind of just use it. But to your point, it's like, you know, you don't want to be just known as like the secondary character in Seinfeld once in your, in your career. That's what happened to Toby. I mean, she had a hard time because she was trying to get serious roles and they knew her just as the funny girl on Seinfeld, the redhead. And that was the whole thing. But when I, when um, I first started working with NBC and when football night in America used to originate from 30 rock, it moved to Stanford, Connecticut, 2014. But my wife would come with me once a month or thereabouts, and we'd go to a Broadway show. And one year, and this has been 10 years ago or more, we went to see La Caja Fold. And there was a guy who played, I don't know how familiar you are with the show, but now, now it's like I'm asking you about Melrose Place. You ever seen the show? But, uh, <laughs> but um, the, the, in the show, there's a straight-laced conservative senator who's the father of one of the two kids and the parents of the other kid that get together are one's a drag queen and the other's gay. And that's the whole cultural thing that this ultra right wing senator is, is looking down on this. But anyway, as the show was going on, I think, man, that guy looks familiar. Why does that guy look so familiar? And it was driving me crazy. And it ended up being the guy that George slipped a Mickey when George left Rick Barr properties and came back, and uh, and at the end of the show, he <laughs> drank up, and that was him. And it drove me nuts until I figured out who it was. So, so they don't just pop up on other TV shows; they pop up if you go to a Broadway show. You never know if you're going to see one of them. How you blew that McConnell deal? I'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we we had him on. The, we, we talked to him as well. We, we had him on the show. Yeah. He was great. So, hey, Mike, tell us. I, I've heard about the book, but. Tell us a little, you know, I always, we always have parallels between Seinfeld and sports and, you know, we're, we love the show, but we're also critical of the show, right? We're, we're fair analysts, um, just like you are with the NFL. Any, any tidbits uh, from the book you could talk us through? Well, and just big picture, because I get this question from people all the time, because I am very critical of the NFL when I think the NFL needs to be criticized. And people will say to me, well, why do you cover the NFL if you hate the NFL? It's like, I don't hate the NFL. I, I grew up in the 70s, and I was indoctrinated into football, not by Madden, because there was no Madden at the time. NFL Films was yeah. the primary vehicle for getting kids really interested in the NFL, because you didn't get the saturation of games that you now have. You maybe saw two or three on a Sunday afternoon. There was no Sunday night. Thursday night only happened during the World Series when they didn't want to have a Monday night game up against the World Series, so they moved it to Thursday. It was otherwise Monday night, Sunday afternoon, and that's it. And NFL films, whether it was Game of the Week or Football Follies or whatever they put together. And they did too good of a job with the mythology of the NFL because for a kid like me who was seven, eight, nine years old back in the early 70s, you, you have an idealized vision of what it is. And so now that I cover it and now that I scrutinize it, now that I know the people who are the stewards of the game, if I see them behaving in a way that I don't think lives up to that standard that they baked into my brain, that they brainwashed into me when I was seven, eight, nine years old, it pisses me off. And so they can only blame themselves. Because, and I've said this time and again recently, because there's been a lot of controversies in the past several weeks that have really dusted this off for me. But it's like, folks, you created this monster back in 1974 with your NFL films shows aimed at getting me sucked in. I have a view of what the NFL should be. And if it falls short of that, I'm going to say so. Because it should be better than it is. They should do things better than they do. And the, the big picture in the book, and it's, it's structured 
so that it looks back at 20 years of specific incidents, controversies, scandals, etc. And through that trip down memory lane, I try to draw out the lessons that here's a way the NFL could do something better. Here's a way maybe they want to change. Here's a way they handled something well. Here's a way they handled something not too well. Here's something they care about that they should. Here's something they care about that they shouldn't. I mean, they continue to care about whether or not guys smoke pot on their own time. It's ridiculous. It's outdated. It's asinine. But they still care about it. And they'll still discipline you for it. Now, it's harder to get suspended than ever before. But they shouldn't care about it at all, especially since it's been proven to help guys deal with pain and it's far safer than the narcotics that they have guys take. So I'll criticize what needs to be criticized. And in Playmakers, you will see plenty of things. And, you know, if you follow the NFL closely or just casually over the last 20 years, you'll learn a lot. You'll relearn things. You'll learn details about scandals that happened that maybe you never even knew. And my editor, Ben Adams, challenged me to try to get some new information that had never before been reported. And I told him it's going to be hard because, number one, the media is saturating that space. There aren't many details that don't get learned at the time the story is unfolding before our eyes. And for some of this stuff, I'm going back 10 or 15 years. So, uh, But but I I took the challenge and I tried to find some new stuff that – it pushes and, the ball forward a little bit. Not a lot, but but enough that I was proud of the fact that I tried and, and that I hit some pay dirt. Totally, totally appreciate 100%. that. And, it, and I think I think the parallels I'm making here, kind of with Seinfeld and the NFL, is ratings, right? We could say what we want. It's saturated. It's for me turning into the NBA, it's on every night, it's too much, but the numbers are there. It, it's if you know. Whether we like it or not, right? Even as TV ratings diminish, sports ratings, you know, are holding steady, especially the NFL. And then on the, on the flip side, I go back to seasons eight, nine, and Seinfeld, which were very critical of as well. But the ratings were through the roof, thirty-five million, you know. So it's like you could be critical of it, but people were still watching. But I still think they need people. They need people like us, Mike, to be yeah. to kind of draw that fine line and 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 just make sure like. It's not what it was and the kind of poke holes where they can improve. I can't help but wonder whether there wouldn't have been a ninth season of Seinfeld if social media were around back in the mid to late 90s. Because I think Jerry was always very sensitive to how the show was perceived. Mm. And maybe it's better than it is bad that he didn't have real-time feedback because he would have been tormented by. You're right. Right. That's a really good point. Overly influenced by the the critics who – knew their stuff and it was obvious that they were were savvy about the show because i i started to get it was it really for me it, it kind of started to dip in seven seven but, yeah but eight was like well you know i love this show and i got to see it through and it's appointment viewing on thursday nights and it's not like there's anything else on right now that i really like to watch so i'm going to keep watching it but i really do wonder whether they would have done nine if they would have been more aware of the reaction of the hardcore fans to season eight. That's a valid point. And just want to touch on a thing you just mentioned before about the NFL, when you said they brainwashed us back when, you know, the NFL films, I did, I did, I did, a, I, did a, I was talking about the library sides degree. I actually did a project on NFL films archives and, and how they create their, I mean, it was propaganda. It was literally pure propaganda. That's what every shot they used, how they set it up, 
how they presented it to us with the music and the fly, everything was 100% propaganda. And, and this just gets me fired up because you're 100% right. And they brainwashed those players that, that were watching it as kids when they became football players to do the things they were doing. They were telling them, no, no, don't do it anymore. Wait a minute. We just showed you a highlight of the biggest hits in the world, but, and you've been practicing this your whole entire life. Now you're at the pinnacle of your game, but now you have to hold back and you can't touch the quarterback. Like what, how are you doing it to these people? I don't know. It just gets me fired up. It's, it's hard. It's I think, hard to watch people get brainwashed games. in a lot of ways. And you know, the yeah. scouting combine, which is currently happening now, uh, we interviewed a bunch of the kids who were there and they're all conditioned when you try to ask them what team would you like to play for? Cause they all have a favorite team. Well, I'm just happy to be here and I'll be happy to be drafted by whoever drafts me. You know, would you like to play with Tom Brady if he's not really retired? Well, I'll play with anybody, you know, they, and a lot of it's their agents telling them this is what you want to say, right. but they're so wired to believe this whole thing is an honor and a privilege. And it's not, I'm a big proponent of having no draft whatsoever. I think it's un-American to say to a kid in any industry, Hey, you want to come work here? we got 32 companies in this industry. We're going to decide where you work. You don't get to decide where you go. We're going to decide where you go. There's no other industry in America other than pro sports that does it that way. And it first dawned on me 11 years ago, that there's something not right about this. And one of my crusades, and it's funny, sometimes people get pissed off at me, but I really don't care. I've tried to get one at a time people to understand that, you know, if a kid grows up in Pittsburgh and wants to stay in Pittsburgh where his family and his friends are, but he got drafted by the Seattle Seahawks, he shouldn't have to go. He should be able to go where he wants to go and just be up to the Steelers, whether or not they want to sign him and whether he wants to sign there like it is in any other industry. Right. And that's 100%. the incentive wow. to not be dysfunctional. Because right now, if you're the most dysfunctional team in the NFL, your reward is you get dibs on the best player. I think that, that you, you remove that and everyone has an incentive to not be a mess of a team. And if you are a mess, you're going to continue to be a mess until you break out of it. So anyway, that's one of my soapbox items that I. Yeah, that's that, that's I a tough it. one. I mean, if you think about Western Pennsylvania, I guess they would have had Marino, Montana, you know, everybody. Right. But um, well, they could have Marino and they passed on him because they thought Bradshaw still had gas in the tank and he ended up playing one more game in his career after they passed on Marino. Well, yeah. I mean, please, the Jets got Ken O'Brien. But I mean, you talk about it. It's. <laughs> It's about the money, right? George Young used to say, when they say it's not about the money, it's about the money. But it, when does it stop? Like, I, listen, this it's not going to last forever, this gravy train, right? There, there's going to come a point, all the concussion stuff. I'm just curious. No, I know you don't, no, you don't, you don't keep rolling. The concussion stuff's gone. It's over. It's done. They paid out the concussion yeah, settlement. And, you know, rem remember when there was a period of time where we thought guys were going to stop playing football? Chris Borland. They made yeah. a big deal about his decision to retire after a year or two in the NFL. And, oh, there's going to be a lot more to do it. Nobody, no, no, nobody's done it. Nobody's done it. And guys keep playing. And now everyone knows the risks. The whole foundation of the concussion litigation was the NFL failed to inform them of the risks they were taking, covered up the severity of the of the – not just the concussions, but the sub-concussive hits from just the repetitive trauma banging against each other at the line of scrimmage. But guys keep playing. Guys keep playing. So I, I think that it's here to stay, and it's going to be fueled by the ongoing explosion of legalized gambling. I think yeah. 17 games in the regular season is a stop over to 18. I think there's going to be more teams. Hopefully I'll be alive to see it happen. I think 32 is eventually going to become 40. And I think they're eventually going to be playing sooner than eventually. They're going to be playing games on Tuesday and Wednesday nights because here's the key. The moment the technology is fully deployed in an affordable way so that when you take this device and 
you're able, whether it's this, whether it's your smart TV, whether it's anything where you're watching a game, when you see on your screen in real time what's happening at the stadium with no lag, and that technology exists. I mean, I'm connected to Stanford, Connecticut every day from the studio above my house with a real-time, no-delay link. It's out there. It's just a matter of making it affordable and making it widespread. Once it's there, you're going to see people betting on every play, on every drive. Is it a run or a pass? Is it over under five and a half yards? Yeah. There's going to be a full array. You know, like the, the felt on a, on a craps table. There's going to be a full array of props on every play. And it's a buck here and a buck there. That's what's going to make the but game. That's not, that's not fandom. That's not fandom. That's just degenerates, right? Well, like, What's fantasy football, though? What's I, fantasy I agree. Football? I, I think fantasy football has ruined the sport, quite frankly. Um, I'm out yeah, of it. You're rooting for players, not teams. It's, it's right. a whole. It screws up your rooting mess. interest. I remember yeah, when I first played in 1980. Who are you, a West Virginia guy? Who, what was your team growing up? Well, it's a long story. I'm a contrarian, so I grew up 60 miles from Pittsburgh, but I didn't want to be a Steelers fan because everybody in town was a Steelers fan, so I became a Vikings fan. So I got to watch the Vikings lose three Super Bowls, and my friends celebrate four Super Bowl wins by the Steelers. But that's fine because that <laughs> that that unrequited feeling of fandom not resulting in the ultimate prize probably kept me interested in football long enough to yeah. lead to this business. Cause I was a big baseball fan too, but you know what? The pirates won the world series in 1979. So I, I, I didn't stick with it the way I stuck with football just because yeah, I got that deep seated disappointment of all those years where the Vikings were good, but not good enough. And that's what, that's what, you know, right. 20, 30 years later carried me into this business. So it's just crazy how stuff like that happens. Yeah. Once you get your championship, your rooting interests kind of start to wane. I found anyway, but, um, you know, just to, t- just except to, you're, uh, except you're an Eagles fan, Eagles fans yeah. have gotten even crazier since they got one. It's amazing. They're more desperate to get the second one than they were to get the first one. Um, yeah, you go, I'm a I'm a cowboy fan, so I'll 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 stop on the Eagles. I'm like you. I'm in New York, but I became a cowboy fan because I didn't want to be a Giant or Jet fan, so I went with the Cowboys. Um, but uh, you know, ju- just to kind of it's a bad segue, but bring it back to Seinfeld a bit here while we still got you. Um, you know, you mentioned the deal. Um, curious if you have a top three or a top five, or if there's any other ones that kind of pop out to you as far as uh, episodes go that really. Um, maybe some deep cuts that aren't, uh, you know, um, thought of at the top by, by some fans, but, um, you know, we found interestingly enough doing this podcast, I've been shocked, absolutely shocked by how many, uh, fans on Twitter and things like this are fans of eight and nine and not of like, you know, two, three, four five. Um, I just blew me away. I just was expecting it to be everyone kind of the same page, but, I'm sensing you're more of a two, three, you know, two through five uh, uh, fan. So maybe some of yours will be kind of, uh, you know, a bit more uh, deep cuts. Well, the outing definitely is my favorite without question. And I don't even know what counts as a deep cut because I just know all of them. You know, right, right, right. Audrey with the nose job and the line from Kramer, you got butchered. is just beautiful and perfect. And I <laughs> love that episode so much. It's, you know, because th- th- that's when we first understand who Kramer really is going to be. The guy who will always say whatever is on his mind and just that look, you got butchered. And we laugh about that from time to time when it comes to NFL surgeries, because every surgery is a success. Every player is ahead of schedule. I just sent that clip. You got butchered to somebody 
because I can't remember which player it was. Well, he had surgery and it was success. So, yeah, then no way they never say you got butchered. Um, I really do like, and I think this is probably season eight, even though I said earlier that if Jerry had been privy to the reaction to season eight, he wouldn't have done season nine. I really love the Kenny Rogers roaster episode. That 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 for what I don't know why, but but I've just always enjoyed that one. The bad chicken mess you up, and the whole thing with the changing apartments and yeah, the, the changing and apartments is good. Jerry acting like Kramer and Kramer acting like Jerry, and it really wasn't well done. They're, they're, they did not act well as each other, and maybe that was intended, but but that right. whole episode, start to finish, is just one that – and maybe I liked it so much because it came at a time where I felt like they were they were kind of dipping. Uh, or, you know, the Larry King thing, you know, ever, doesn't every show start to doesn't – it, doesn't it go down? <laughs> they were kind of going down, so maybe that one popped up for me and made me like it even more because I, I wasn't expecting much then. Yeah, and speaking of Larry yeah, King, I think you were I think you were a little critical of Jerry on Twitter during the whole uh, when Larry King uh, passed away. Are you uh, are you a, Jer- a Seinfeld Jerry Seinfeld fan? Oh, I, I think I think Jerry's great, but but I mean he he was he was being he, he, that clip. Yeah, he was pissed. Yeah. He was yeah. pissed, and he didn't let it go. I and know. Uh, you know, and hey, Larry King was factually wrong, uh, but you know, um, you you can tell. There's a fire in Jerry that fueled everything he ever did, mm-hmm. and he conceals that because it's not good for business to openly be as driven and motivated and competitive as he was. But, you know, any anything I've read about how he researched and performed as a comedian and, you know, we had a very clinical and strategic way of going about it. You know, th- this guy, this guy is kind of a comedy scientist. And, um, you know, you, 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 don't, you don't reach the level of success in any field if you aren't an asshole to a certain extent, because that asshole quality is what drives you. It's what gets you to stay up late. It's what gets you to not take an afternoon off. It's what gets you to focus on your work when there's other distractions, that desire to win, that desire to do well, that desire to have your work stand up favorably in comparison to others, that that element that may make you a little pissy at times when you think somebody doesn't properly understand what you've done and you're being disrespected and it comes out and flashes, it's understandable. He's never going to be as great as he was and that show's never going to be as good as it was if he didn't have a little of that in him. And I can speak to that because I got a lot of it in me. Yeah. Your your story you told about, you know, the head of Peacock now and you went in and you said, that's the show. Like that actually came from Jerry. Like we had one of the original writers on and they wouldn't let Larry off with the NBC execs as he went too nuts. Jerry went in and, and told them like, this is the show, leave us alone. And he was steadfast and like, just to your point, really disciplined. And that's, and that's why the show took off because of that. So, and I'm curious, we haven't talked about Larry much, but you know, Kirby enthusiasm, people love, but where like, where do you kind of put that next to Seinfeld? Do you just, I mean, do you enjoy it? Do you, compare them at all like where do you kind of place curb in the kind of sitcom pantheon if you will it's in a different bucket because it's seinfeld without any without the restrictor plate i guess right use a nascar term it's it's what seinfeld would have been if seinfeld had been on hbo you know and and it's it's just raunchy enough it's just inappropriate enough 
And, and it really makes me wish Larry David had just played George Costanza, although I don't think it, the show would have worked because I don't think the world was ready for Larry David. And Larry David's like a hot bathtub where you have to ease into it very, very gradually. And we got just enough of Larry David in flashes through the series, whether it was that voice, whether it was him in a cape, you know, just enough little things, uh, you know, when he's looking out the window and he says, "We, you know, we, we, you got lipstick, uh, your majesty yeah. on your $20 bill, just enough to get comfortable with who the guy is, that the stage was set for him to have his own career as a performer. So I think it's great. I love it. Not long ago, I watched the whole series. I'll put stuff on while I'm working or I'll watch it while I'm working out. And I watched the whole series start to finish through this most recent season. And, and, and I love it. And I don't, it's like children. You don't have a favorite. You view them separately. And for me, it's Seinfeld, Curb, and The Office. Those are my three favorite series. And I really don't rank them. Among, once, you're, once you're in that category of one of my all-time favorites, I, I'm not going to try to say, well, I like this one a little bit more than the other. I like them all the same, or they wouldn't be in that category. Yeah, that's fair. And it's interesting, the point you just brought up, I was thinking about it with, with Seinfeld. I'm kind of glad Seinfeld was on HBO, right? Because that's what gave us a lot of the humor. Like you talked about the outing, not there's anything wrong with that, or the contest or the deal. Like all these things where they had to work around what to say, you know? Um, and that's the beauty of the writing. And it, you let us use our imagination. And it also pushed boundaries. I mean, people say Jerry's, a, you know, doesn't work blue at his stand-up. But the themes in Seinfeld, uh, the show itself, are are very dark a lot of times, especially Larry Charles episodes. They're very dark. Um, a lot of a lot of sex stuff that, that kind of goes, you know, into windows and everything like that. So the brilliance kind of shines through. Whereas, whereas Curb, because it's on HBO, can kind of punch you with the, the F-bombs and all that kind of stuff. And, and it, it's not doesn't really hit as much for me as far as funny goes. I mean, when curb hits, it hits, but I think pound for pound Seinfeld hits, hits more uh, because it's written and it's written so well. The cold open to the contest when George sits down <laughs> and says, my mother caught me. I remember watching it for the first time when it, whatever, whenever it was that it debuted. And I'm thinking, are they, are they, are they talking about what I think they're talking? <laughs> holy, holy shit. They're talking about this on NBC at nine o'clock at night on a weeknight. What in the hell? I mean, I know they, you know, they've done it on SNL, but on and and it was just it was fascinating. It was it was it was uh, remarkable. And and I just remember the whole time watching that episode, thinking, I cannot believe that they got away with this. Like whoever is responsible for censoring content must have either been in a coma or on vacation in Bermuda or something, because I was stunned that that got through. Yeah, an all an all time classic. Now was that sh that episode was still Wednesday night, believe it or not. It didn't get the the massive ratings, but I think at that point, you know. Yeah, no, I just assumed it was Thursday. I can't yeah. remember when it was on Wednesday. And I remember being I'm sorry to interrupt you and dominate this conversation. That that's okay. I told you I'm an asshole, so that forgives me. <laughs> I, I remember being pissed off that the show didn't have more of a following and rooting for it and feeling ownership of it. And like, why don't more people watch this show? This show is great. This show needs to be on a higher profile. This show needs to be watched by more people. And I guess I was concerned it was going to get canceled, but, but I also thought that, you know, you get invested in it. And I thought that more people should be watching it and enjoying it. I remember having that feeling after I discovered it and really 
really felt the hooks dig into me. I think it was the JFK episode that really sold it to me. My dad was still alive then. And, and we watched that episode together and he loved that. And that really, you know, that connection, that emotional connection with a parent or that, that, that helped me get even more serious about my fandom of the show. But I just remember being really upset that I felt like the show wasn't developing the following it deserved. Kind of like all yeah. the events. Yeah. I, fair point. I mean, listen, when it was Wednesday night, it was doing roughly like 16 million yet. Wings, Wings was after Cheers, and I was doing thirty million. So it's like, you know, the old adage: "Why are you watching it?" Because it's on TV. And like Thursday, just had a kind of special place. And I'm curious. I'm curious what NBC would do these days if you know they had the NFL rights for Thursday going up against Seinfeld. Like, what would they do? Well, it's it's two different worlds. I mean, the problem is in this day and age, they would just push off Seinfeld. But the NFL gathers a live audience. I think everybody would watch football live and they'd watch Seinfeld afterward. Yeah. Right. Nowadays, it's not a point of television. The TV shows on their own watch. There's no longer that moment where, hey, it's nine o'clock on Tuesday. We have to go watch this show. We just watch it whenever we want to watch it. We watch it whenever it's at our convenience. And there's a certain element of, you know, I want to save it until Friday night when I can unwind from the weekend. My wife and I on Friday night will find things to watch. And even if there's a show that came out four days earlier, we don't feel the urgency to watch it then. We save it for Friday night. One of the reasons why the networks are paying so much to the NFL, the NFL is the one property that will command people to tune in as it's happening. Eight o'clock on Thursday night, eight o'clock on Sunday night, all day long on Sunday, Monday night. That's why I think they're going to go to Tuesday and Wednesday night at some point. It gathers that 20 to 30 million dollar or 30 to 20 to 30 million person audience like nothing else can. When I first joined NBC, American Idol was the number one show in primetime because it was gathering that large group to watch it live. And that faded. And I don't think anything from a TV standpoint is ever going to do what the NFL currently does, especially because everything is so much more fractured now. But when you when you put a live game on, it pulls everyone together. This Amazon experiment's going to be very intriguing later this year because how many millions are going to tune in to Amazon Prime to watch the Thursday night game? What quality of games is the NFL going to put there? What kind of appointment viewing is it going to be? Can they deliver a big audience on a streamer? This is a test that I think is critical to the future of NFL broadcasting because they're they're putting their toe in the water to break away from NBC, CBS, Fox, and ABC. And if they can find a foothold on a streaming platform, uh, number one, they'll do it. And number two, I think having the NFL thrive on a streamer will be perhaps the most significant development in that breakaway from traditional TV where people are just going to have Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime and Disney Plus yeah, having a satellite or a cable package. I know Peacock did a test of that this year with Notre Dame, right? That one paid game. I don't know how that translated, but I guess that was a kind of a good test run that maybe Amazon looked at. I don't know. Well, but nothing gathers people like the NFL. And I don't know about the numbers from the Notre Dame game that we had, but you know the, the, the games that are broadcast now, on the three-letter networks, I think for the most part are all available on a streamer. And I know the, the, the Sunday night football games were on Peacock every week. And, and I, I just think this Amazon – and then look, the NFL is going to give up short-term audience size. They are because you're not going to have the same magnitude of people tune in to Amazon Prime, but it's going to pull more people to Amazon Prime. 
and they're going to make more money in the process. And 5, 10, 15 years from now, I, I just think that the networks, it's not that the networks are going to be irrelevant. They're pivoting to the streaming platforms. But the primary delivery service is going to be the streaming platform, not the, the TV channel that comes through the rabbit ears or through your, your cable or satellite package. Well, as, as George says, he can afford it. Uh, to Bezos, but uh. <laughs> yeah, you know, speaking of gathering people in front of the TV, the, I, I believe you're you've been a bit critical on the finale. Is that correct? I know a lot of people watched the finale. What was your thoughts on on the finale? Assignment? I, I like think the I read finale. I was very you didn't, right? I yeah. was very disappointed by the finale. They they tried to do too much, and it it, it was just ridiculously over the top. And as a practicing lawyer, the idea that that <laughs> and I know that they're not trying to be realistic from a legal standpoint, but the idea that a prosecutor would bring an elephant gun to something that a mousetrap would be sufficient for was ridiculous to me. It was a low-level crime, and I think they wanted to comment and be self-aware on what jerks they were and how selfish right. they were. And this is the ultimate epitome of their selfishness, that they laugh and point at a fat guy yeah. who was getting robbed instead of help him out and actually get prosecuted for it and go to jail. I just think it was it was a bad idea and they needed somebody to speak up early on and say, this isn't going to work. We need to come up with another way. But I felt like they also were, were desperate to come up with a vehicle for bringing back all these characters. Uh, and I remember seeing the, the media reports at the time that, you know, different people who had been bit characters were spotted all at the same time in the same place. And so the finale yeah. is going to have all these other people. And I just I never really liked it. And it's one of those that even the passage of time has not made me enjoy it even more i just i just think it was a swing and a miss and it's a shame and in contrast the finale of the office was so much better and it just hit every note that it needed to hit and it wrapped everything up the way it needed to and, yeah. and i i just i think that uh that they, that they blew it they blew it and and i suspect if you had a few you know tequilas in jerry seinfeld he would admit that he's still a little bit tormented by the way that that show walked off into the sunset yeah, I look at it almost as when it aired live, I didn't like it that much. And I looked at it as almost the way a lot of a lot of people that watch football every Sunday, every game, right? They have the package, they're watching every game. When the Super Bowl comes, they're everyone else is watching it, right? And and they're not watching it with the same eye. When you watch this year's Super Bowl, if you watched every game of football leading up to it, you would have thought you were watching a different game. I mean, there was no flags. There was no, it was not, it was like watching a different game. There's no replays. Meanwhile, on a Sunday, all I'm seeing is replays and then flags every five seconds, right? So the, I looked at the finale the same way as the Super Bowl. It was like everyone tuned in. Half people had never even seen, oh, the Seinfeld finale is on, let me watch it. And I felt like they were appeasing to those people with like callbacks and showing us stuff that we already probably knew. Maybe that's what bothered me. I don't know. I didn't like it the first time either, but I did like, Rewatching it, it kind of grew on me, but it's a tough thing to do. But I kind of compared it to the Super Bowl in a way, and that it gets the the non fans to watch, and then it's like, how do you how do you appease the fans and the non fans at the same time? It's a very difficult thing to do. So I just think they got they got freaked out. They tried to do too much. It was too ambitious, and it should have just been um, like any other episode, but that had that element of closure weaved into whatever the storylines were. And it just, it was, it was, uh, I just remember from the very early scenes of that thinking, uh, this isn't going to be very good. And uh, I didn't, well, just, and it just, <laughs> as it unfolded, it's like, it just, I had that, because you want it to be great. 
It's the farewell right, show right. that you felt so connected to. But it's not a, it's not a connected it's not a it's not a sentimental show, right? Like the office always had the sentimental stuff to it. It always had, you know, a touch of a cry here or they're in love there. So they can that lends itself to a finale where everyone brings it all together and we're like happy and let's wrap it all up like uh like a you know, but Seinfeld never had that, so they couldn't all of a sudden get that either, you know, in a weird way. That's kind of how I looked at it, too. It just, it, it, I mean, I just remember when the plane was going down, like, 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 come on, we know the plane. We know this isn't going to end. <laughs> this is a bad lines. Yeah. The, the, the private agree, yeah, yeah, jet yeah. crashing. It just felt kind of hokey and overdone. I, and, and again, Look, when you invest so many hours of your life watching it, you earn the privilege, I think, of being critical of any of the episodes. And I'm not critical of many of the other episodes. Now, yeah. the Puerto Rican Day Parade thing, I thought was a little bit of a stretch and maybe they were out of ideas. But um, it just you expected they were saving something. Right. You know, it's like a fireworks show. Don't bring out the, the sparklers for the last for the portion of the fireworks show. Save something for me that's going to be really good. And that's, I guess, what kind of surprised me that... I would think that Jerry is sufficiently meticulous about his comedy that he would have been planning the exit and he would have at some point in five or six years before the finale come up with the guts of a basic idea and continue to think about, you know, what's our last show going to be? We are going to have a last show at some point. It needs to be great. What's it going to be? And I just feel like he didn't do that because if he had, it would have been better than what we got. Well, fair, fair point, counselor. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you, <laughs> that's a fair point. You got me. I mean, listen, for my money, they should have ended after season five on the opposite. So right. That, that goes without saying. But listen, Mike, this has been a, this has been a pleasure, man. Can't wait for the book to come out. Love what you're doing on, on Pro Football Talk. Love the show with Sims. And it's just great talking Seinfeld with you. Well, I appreciate talking to you guys about it. And uh, now I'm going to go watch it for the rest of the night. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mike. This was this was great. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Take it easy.